0: Welcome to Weird Studies. This is J.F. The instinct of play is, as Phil says, an arcanum. It's a mystery. At a glance, play and games will seem the most superfluous thing in the world. But the ubiquity of play among the so-called higher animals, and particularly of games in human culture, suggests otherwise. Heraclitus gives play and games a primordial function in a famous fragment that goes, Time is a child playing at drafts. That, at least, is the most popular translation of his obscure aphorism. The term time here is a somewhat simplistic translation of a much richer Greek word, aeon, which has also been rendered as history, eternity, and a lifetime. The second part of the fragment is also important. A kingly power is the child's. What Heraclitus characterizes as child's play isn't limited to the causal order measured by clocks, It's a deeper principle that undergirds and sustains this order. Arguably, a spontaneity and autotelic freedom that precedes mechanical necessity as such. For Heraclitus, games come first. The cosmos doesn't inhere in the mechanical drudgery of work, one thing after another, but in a spirit of play, an openness that manifests, perhaps, in the immediate aesthetic experience of the world's uncontrollable, and inexplicable beauty. Recording this episode with Phil gave me the opportunity to mention a book I had the honor of writing a foreword for recently. The Book of Antitheses by Joe Bittman is an attempt to marry tabletop role-playing games, my first and lasting love, with the practice of magic. This book will be of obvious interest to listeners who've been initiated into the mysteries of Dungeons and Dragons and other games of make-believe, but it's also a wonderful magical primer in its own right, and a valuable resource for writers and poets who want to up their imaginative game with the tried and tested techniques of sorcery. Tongue-in-cheek, irreverent, and provocative as it is at times, the book has one quality that trumps any argument you might mount against it. It's totally singular, a gorgeous and gorgeously executed volume that I urge you to add to your collection of weird literature. It's published by Lamentations of the Flame Princess, but remains, for all you gamers out there, completely system neutral. This podcast is made possible by the generous contributions of hundreds of listeners who have made the leap into the weird by joining our Patreon. Patrons, your support ensures that this wonderful game that Phil and I are playing never sours into mere work. Thank you for your support, your comments, your engagement, and your enduring spirit of play. All right, episode 117 on games and play begins now. We hope you enjoy our conversation. You were saying vampires. Oh,
1: vampires. That I've said some harsh things about vampires in the past. Calling them corny and played, but you know, actually, I'm beginning to sort of see some dramatic possibilities in vampires. Oh, and yeah. yet, I'm still not that into vampires because I realize I've said some obliging things about cliche. How if you play your cliches straight, you push through banality and into genius and ecstasy, right? But. Most vampire shit remains firmly on the side of the banal, and I was thinking about that just with the um. Yeah. There's like the vampire facial expression that you always see. Let's let's see if I can do it.
0: <laughs> take a screenshot. We could put that as our little episode <laughs> header. <laughs> um, I agree with you that vampires can be done badly, but vampires to me, they're pretty perennial. I think Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Francis Ford Coppola adaptation of Bram Stoker's novel is a fantastic movie. Like, I think it's one of the great movies, despite some flaws in the, at the, on the casting front. Is it's this the so one good. with Keanu Reeves? Yes. As Van Helsing? Yeah. No, he plays um, Harker. Okay. He plays the, the young solicitor who goes to, to the never castle. I've never seen the
1: movie. I've only seen clips of his performance oh. in videos where people want to mock his bad English accent.
0: Yes, the the English accent's not good at all. <laughs> Neither is Winona Ryder. Although she, I think she's a fantastic actor. We agree Wait, on Winona. Winona Ryder's
1: in this movie. Oh Excuse yeah. Excuse me, I have something to do. We'll have to reschedule
0: <laughs> this recording
1: for another she time. She plays
0: Mina. She plays Mina Harker, and of course, Gary Ullman plays Dracula and just knocks it out of the park. He's unbelievably mm. good. It's very in earnest in a way, but I think it works. And Coppola did a bunch of stuff with the camera and the sets. And it's just, it's just a masterpiece. Like, so... I'm sold on vampires because of that movie, because of Anne Rice, because I was a kid. I was young. I read Interview with a Vampire. I went through a goth phase. Of of course you did. (laughs) I do not renege renege or recant my youth. It's one of my principles. I have to stand by it. So to this day, Jim Morrison is a great poet. Vampires are awesome. These are just principles I have. I don't want to betray my young self. I have a confession to make, though. The reason that I've started seeing some
1: virtues in the vampire archetype is not because of any of these fine films that you've discussed or other fine films such as Nosferatu or the classic Bela Lugosi, Dracula, which is very interesting by the way, because it's a super early sound film. And if you're interested in the development of film music and film sound, it's really interesting as a coelacanth like survival from a primeval age. But, to be honest, I haven't been paying attention to any of that stuff. I have been playing Skyrim and I have acquired a vampire companion named Serana. Oh. <laughs> and I like Serana. She's sexy and sassy. She's cool. She's like the cool girl at high school who never would have hung out with me. But in the game, she, for some reason, likes hanging out with Chumley the Uncomely, my dark elf right. character. <laughs> <laughs> and I like having her around. She helps me kill things and yeah. smart mouths me. Sometimes She's Just add savor to the game. That's pretty lowbrow. I, I realize this is not like me reading the original Bram Stoker novel and having deep ideas about it. Nope. Sexy vampire companion.
0: That's my way in. That's what games can do. Yes. You know, games confront you with living cliches, or at least they, you know, I'm talking about role-playing games specifically. They'll confront you with a cliché that's not... It's not just some external object you get to judge. You're actually facing it. Like, my daughter is very... Kind of, she rolls her eyes a lot at fantasy, like princesses and wizards and that sort of thing. But then, when she's playing Dungeons & Dragons, she's fully on board. All in. You know, when, you're f- when you're facing a dragon, even the most cliché dragon, when it's going to kill you, all of a sudden, the cliché becomes another thing altogether, yes. so... Games uh, can blur that distinction between stereotype and archetype. Well, to call it back to Jack Smith, Jack Smith talks about the flaming image, right? And he talks about
1: what can be recuperated, what can be mined from a cheesy old jungle flick that cannot be attempted to be taken seriously. You can mine something fabulous from that the flaming image but what's the difference between the flaming image and just a corny hokey set with a corny hokey performance taking place woodenly in front of it perhaps games might give us some insight into that that what's the difference between just a corny ass dragon and the dragon that you're fighting like if you're playing skyrim or for that matter if you're playing a tabletop role-playing game The game adds some kind of conviction to that that turns it into a flaming image. And I want to understand what it is that the game adds or what allows the game to do that.
0: Yeah. Fantastic segue from vampires to games, I gotta say. I know. Pretty slick, right? (laughs) (laughs) So what did we do for this show? We read a bunch of stuff. We probably read different
1: stuff, I'm guessing. We just had a lot of tax at our disposal.
0: Yeah, you put up a list on our private Discord. I had already read some of it. So, Roger Caillois, a man, play, and games, French sociologist, mm-hmm. wrote this great book, which, when did was that published?
1: It was published in France in 1958.
0: So, in 58. But uh, Caillois was working off, or at least in his introduction, he uh, suggests that he's picking up where another great book left off in a way, or he's kind of just working with... John, uh, Johan, Johan, (laughs) Johan Hausinger wrote a book called Homo Ludens. It's the classic in ludology. It's a a wonderful book. I love that book. Uh, theory of games and the play function and human in the, the, uh, the development of human culture. We read a bit of, uh, Wittgenstein. Yeah. Philosophical investigations, some great ideas in there. Bernard Suits, so a book called The Grasshopper, Games, Life, and Utopia, which Phil recommended, but I only read the introduction. I didn't even get to the part you said I should read at the end, but you can bring that, that piece in if it's necessary. Mm-hmm. It, uh, looks like a more of an analytical philosophy book yeah. about games. And Joe Bittman's The Book of Antitheses, which is uh, a game book that I had the honor of writing the foreword to, published by Lamentations of the Flame Princess came out recently so we might talk about that because this is interesting because it's a it's a book for role-playing game players who want to incorporate essentially magical practice into their gameplay we don't really have a plan we're going to try to just talk about the weirdness of games i guess and try to find the kind of beating heart of the game concept um by coming at it from different angles
1: and also you know if if there are people who are new to the show who are listening to this should point out that games are like jf's thing going back to the very beginning of the show one of the first shows we did each of us wanted to do a show on a respective game yours on role playing games and at that point i had never played a role playing game so i i had to re-listen to that show but i can't imagine i was much help and then uh you know we did a a show on combat sports. And um, right. right from the beginning, announcing that play is one of the central arcana in the weird yes. studies universe. Lately though, like you and I've done a lot of role-playing games together. We had this great circle. It was playtesting a scenario that you and Peter Babergall co-authored. Am I allowed to talk about that? To mention that?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. For Call of And Cthulhu. as I've mentioned on the show, after a particularly bruising year, of academic administration, I gave myself a treat and decided I would play Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, which is a marvelous video game. And through that, have really rediscovered an old, old love of video games, Long Dormant, something that I put away as childish things when I gained man's estate. And realizing now that that's, you know, that's some bullshit. That uh, games are not serious but they're totally serious.
0: Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah, they subvert the the serious unserious. I mean I mean access. one point
1: that Heusinger makes right at the beginning is that games are not for anything. You can make money playing games, you could be a professional athlete, but games are not for anything. They're not productive. And right. I feel that that is always going to condemn games to a marginal place in serious culture. It's not for anything. It's just play. And what is play? We don't
0: even know exactly. I mean, when we started this podcast, I remember writing emails back and forth about the spirit of play versus the spirit of work and how play is central to the creative process in art. then, I remember it working its way into our discussions about what we wanted the podcast to be, which would be a place to play with ideas. And so this is something that's been with us since the beginning. And like you said, the Dungeons and Dragons show was like episode, I don't remember, six or seven, something like that, uh, early on. So it's good to get this opportunity to really dig into this idea. And I think a good place to start maybe would be the Wittgenstein In the philosophical investigations, as some of our listeners will know, Wittgenstein makes use of the concept of language games quite a bit. He conceives of human languages in in game terms, right? So a word will mean something within a particular game, but then it means something else in another game. It depends on which language game you're playing. But there's an interesting section in the book where he's trying to define what he means by games. He baldly and proudly says that you don't really need a definition of games. Right. Games are really hard to define. And what you notice when you read the Caillois, which is a book that's really Cartesian, you know, typically French mm-hmm. intellectual, in trying to really nail the concept of games by, by establishing categories, a typology. establishing a typology of games. And I love that stuff. I have to say, even though it's doomed to failure, it's still, I think, a productive endeavor, if you have the mind for it. Yeah, I agree. Hausinger, who, whose concept of games is actually really robust and yet leaves a few key things out, as Kaidoa points out. It's really hard to nail down what a game is. And so Wittgenstein says that the concept of the game is a fuzzy concept. And so you'll have one game that has certain properties, certain attributes and then you'll have another game where you see, oh, you see a lot of commonality between these two games. Like, oh, the, both of them use a ball and both of them, they they aim at placing the ball in a particular spot, like in the net or in a hole. But then you'll have a third game and it'll share a few qualities with game A, but none at all with game B. So he, he describes games in terms of family resemblances. That these things are related to one another, but there's no hard concept that you can kind of just take away and use as a kind of like um or concept to to define all games that's a whole region of human activity that involves various disparate things right i don't know if i would go that far i think that we can be a little bit more cartesian categorical about games but maybe that's one thing we can try to explore but i guess the fuzziness of games or the weirdness of the game concept itself is kind of an interesting place to start maybe
1: yeah absolutely. what is a game yeah, yeah, and then there's Bernard Suits' definition, which is particularly popular, I think, with analytical philosophers because it's so crisp, and it does, in fact, define a huge variety of games, but not all of them. I mean, his definition does not work terribly well for role-playing games, like tabletop role-playing games, for example, or games of Illings, where like jumping on the little thing that goes round and round, the the kind of like a merry-go-round. Sort of, you know, right. on like little kids playgrounds, there's that thing that's like a big disc on a spindle and kids will yeah. like jump on it and go round and round really fast. And they will like to fly off or they'll try to jump on it when it's going round and round
0: or a teeter totter or any game that aims at a kind of derangement of the senses. Yes, right. Right. Which exactly. Should, yeah. Yeah. So suits
1: definition doesn't work for everything, but it's pretty good. And it certainly works well for like video games, almost all video games. Uh, let me find it. Hold on for a sec. i to make sure that I. Yeah, this is at the end of Chapter 3, Construction of a Definition. Suits writes, To play a game is to attempt to achieve a specific state of affairs using only means permitted by rules, where the rules prohibit use of more efficient in favor of less efficient means, and where the rules are accepted just because they make possible such activity. I also offer the following simpler and, so to speak, more portable version of the above. Playing a game is the voluntary attempt to overcome unnecessary obstacles. Yeah, like that's good. It's slender, elegant. It's supported by a mass of intricate and careful reasoning. Bernard Suits was a Canadian, so that's good. Um, there's lots <laughs> of things to recommend it. The fact that it doesn't cover every single possible game is to me not really a drawback because I basically agree with Wittgenstein. Games and play are. A mystery, an arcanum, one of the grand arcanums of human life and culture. And it seems entirely appropriate for the tricksterish deity that rules over play and games that we could never come up with a single definition that would capture every last iota of the phenomenon.
0: Right. I have a definition. Okay. (laughs) But before we get to it, let's just, I, I like the way we're setting the table. And I'd like to go back to Caillois because Roger Caillois's book, Man Play Games, contains a rather rigid set of categories that are supposed to contain all games. And I think he does a good job. Again, it feels incomplete. The list, doesn't have the symmetry I like in a conceptual schema, right? Are you saying it's
1: insufficiently French and Cartesian? It's,
0: it's, yeah, it's a little (laughs) bit, yeah. I like nice, clean systems, but. The way he puts it is as follows. He has four basic categories. Mm -hmm. Aegon, Alia, Mimicry, and Illinx. I-L-I-N-X. So Aegon uh, games are games of skill. Sports, for instance. uh, Chess. Alia are games of chance. Gambling. Poker. Although poker has some elements of Aegon in there as well. And he, he readily admits that. And he says that they can mix different types. Mimicry, which is pretend. Is how I understood it. You take on a role and that's the game. And then Elinx, which is, in my notes, I put ecstasy. These are games that aim at a derangement of the senses, like uh, spinning in place until you get dizzy and falling down. Like games that kids play. Uh, or mountain inst- climbing almost almost might be another instinctually. one. Instinctually. Right? A more Mount- grown up yeah, version. Yeah, Exactly. Although mountain climbing has a lot of skill involved as well, and there's a competitive aspect to it, like have you climbed that rock, whatever. But I think ultimately it's rooted in that feeling, that elation you get of being in a really precarious position as a human being up there perched on a mountain. I was going to say sparring,
1: like sparring and combat sports, although it's obviously Aegon. I mean, it's the classic example of Aegon. Nevertheless, it has aspects of the derangement of the senses, and that's part of the, like they're just being all up in a melee. It's fucking crazy and indescribable, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, I think you could make the argument that even like a sport like baseball, which I used to play as a kid, has an element of elinks. It's the elation of of getting a home run, mm-hmm. right? That's what you fantasize about or the great catch or, you know, there's there's always an element of ecstasy in mm-hmm. every game, if only the feeling of winning or of performing particularly well. like. But I think you're right about fighting sports. I think there's a uh, that's really close to the core, uh, the essence of the sport is that that feeling of putting aside the rules that normally govern human behavior in order to do things you couldn't do otherwise. Yes, quite the so. ring permits certain ecstatic behaviors that are disallowed and, in the. And yeah,
1: what's so weird about fight sports is that those behaviors are hardly different from how they would appear in an actual real world conflict. Yeah, like we talked about this in the boxing episode, the difference between a brawl like a barroom brawl and a fight in a ring or a cage like a some kind of official structure like you're bounding it with the ropes you've got a referee in there there are certain things you do to set it aside from ordinary life and this housing uh, insists is perhaps the thing about games is they are always set aside through a kind of a magic circle from everyday life. And I I think he's absolutely right about that. But that setting aside from everyday life thing is basically taking the activity, minimally changing it and presenting it within this charmed circle. And that itself is kind of the profound weirdness of combat sports.
0: Exactly. And in addition to these four categories, Aegon, Alia, Mimicry, and Elinx, Kailua has this kind of weird polarity, Haidia and Ludus. Haidia is what he calls, I mean, the play instinct, the spontaneity of play, that yeah. kind of natural, like dogs and cats will play yes. uh, spontaneously without yes. rules, except there are rules. You know, the, the claws stay retracted or the bites are not harmful, you know, like there's, they're fighting without fighting. Yeah. So, Can I just quickly put in Housinger's
1: wonderful opening to Homo Ludens, which addresses this very matter. Play is older than culture, for culture, however inadequately defined, always presupposes human society, and animals have not waited for men to teach them their playing. Great first sentence. We can safely assert that human civilization has added no essential feature to the general idea of play. Animals play just like men. We have only to watch young dogs to see that all the essentials of human play are present in their merry gambols. They invite one another to play by a certain ceremoniousness of attitude and gesture. They keep to the rule that you shall not bite, or not bite hard, your brother's ear. They pretend to get terribly angry and, what is most important, in all these doings, they plainly experience tremendous fun and enjoyment. That's great. Exactly.
0: Yeah. And, and that, it's funny, I'm reading a uh, Duns Scotus these days, or a book about Duns Scotus by Mary Beth Ingham, who's a fantastic Scotist theologian. And she refers Scotus back constantly to the Franciscan spirituality of the Franciscans. And, uh, One of the key things in Francis of Assisi is that he really looked at nature and saw it all as play. Like He saw even the work of bees as a kind of form of play. And in a way, you could from Franciscan perspective, you could say that the sacramental way of looking at the world is to see everything as symphonic play, or as we've said before in different contexts, everything is aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Now, play is central to the aesthetic because things, the purposiveness of a particular event is less important than the event itself. The event itself has its own intrinsic meaning and therefore appears as a kind of symphonic burst of beauty, as opposed to being just a cog in a machine aimed at you know result X. So there's a kind of way of seeing all animal behavior as being rooted in play. But that's not what Housing is talking about. He's saying that animals actually play in the way the humans play, and we can observe this. And also, children play instinctively. As you were reading there, I was remembering uh, this great passage from um, Simone Veil from The Need for Roots, where she talks about how in the old system, you know the way things used to happen, a child would apprentice with their parents first when they were young, and for a child, the parents' work feels like play. They want to be part of it. If a child is the son or daughter of a carpenter, they want to play with the tools they want. I remember I did a, a documentary on indigenous tattooing, and one of the episodes we did was in New Zealand, and we were working with a traditional tattooist in New Zealand, and he was Sculpting. He's also a sculptor and he was sculpting with his young son. His son was like two years old and the son, all he wanted was to pick up the chisel and, you know, help his father. And for the child, this is absolutely play, even though it is from our perspective work. So yeah. there's a kind of like, I'd say it goes so deep, so deep, the play function that it even proceeds, not just precedes humans, but in the sense it precedes animals. In play, we're touching on an energy of reality. That sounds kind of weird and mystical, but I I think there's something about reality that you only experience when you're playing, is what I'm trying to say. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah,
1: yeah, it does. Now, you're bringing up that rather sweet story of a child just wanting to help daddy. You know, I think practically anybody listening to this can probably conjure up examples of something similar from their own experience. It would be a very natural move, especially for a, a modern style of thought. To seek in that moment a function. Well, for the, I mean, if I'm putting it in sort of neo-Darwinian terms, for the perpetuation of the species, it is well for the young of human beings to acquire imitate. the skills, yeah. yeah, to imitate and acquire the skills of their elders so that they can uh, acquire a competitive advantage, right? Right. But one thing that Housinger insists on right from the beginning is that all such attempts at explaining play, they're basically red herrings. They get us off on the wrong foot. He lays down right at the beginning, in the first and second page of Homo Ludens, a number of ideas that, like, there's an instinct for play that serves biological functions, for example, the one that I've just described. And Housinger says, all these hypotheses have one thing in common. They all start from the assumption that play must serve something which is not play, that it must have some kind of biological purpose. They all inquire into the why and the wherefore of play. The various answers they give tend rather to overlap than to exclude one another. It would be perfectly possible to accept nearly all the explanations without getting into any real confusion of thought and without coming much nearer to a real understanding of the play concept. They are all only partial solutions to the problem. If any of them were really decisive, it ought either to exclude all the others or comprehend them in a higher unity. Most of them only deal incidentally with the question of what play is in itself and what it means for the player. They attack play direct with the quantitative methods of experimental science without first paying attention to its profoundly aesthetic quality. As a rule, they leave the primary quality of play as such virtually untouched.
0: You could explain that little boy imitating his father as, you know, performing some kind of biological function of imitating the parents in order to perpetuate the species and all that stuff. But that's just not how... It's not how the son's experiencing the event, and it's not how the father is experiencing the event. The father might be experiencing the event as passing on my art to my child, right. but that's not perpetuating the species. Yes. <laughs> that has its own intrinsic value. And then the son, the child, is experiencing the texture of the wood and the, how the chisel works. There's a deeply aesthetic a dimension to the child's experience, which we just basically blanket over and ignore yeah. if we reduce that experience to some kind of biological function. I mean, that's the argument you could use against all of Richard Dawkins, right? right? When he talks about all of human culture as just a way to propagate genes. Well, you can do that at the expense of all of human culture. Right. I guess that's what I was trying to grope at earlier with the Franciscan thing, It's that, or the idea of the aesthetic universe, is that Yes, you can explain a lot by making that move, by rationalizing everything, by interpreting everything in a teleological sense, ironically, since the people who make this argument are the most dead set against the idea of teleology. Well,
1: themselves being incredibly teleological in the way that they approach science, yeah. yeah.
0: Exactly, yeah. We may be a little bit unfair here, I don't know. I know some people are resisting this teleology thing that we're bringing up these days, but whatever. The point is that There's an intrinsic value, an aesthetic quality to play itself, which is not just human. It's also in nature, it's also in animals. And if you're willing to grant the enchanted universe, the possibility of being the case, (laughs) you can also see this element of play in natural events, sunsets, the wind in the leaves, that sort of thing. There's a kind of uh, purely aesthetic, playful quality to nature itself, which is available to those who are willing to suspend their insistence on teleological thinking. Well,
1: (laughs) I actually think- (laughs) Like secularists. I think
0: the business of animals playing actually drives
1: a wedge hard into- The view of the cosmos as essentially like a meaningless thing that we project meaningfulness onto. And I think I've, I don't know if I've, it's not much of a story, but I don't know if I've told it. When my kids were little, when I was living in Texas for a couple of years, working at University of Texas in Austin, my kids were in a Kiwi soccer league and Mm -hmm. would spend Saturday mornings taking the kids to soccer. Big field at a high school. I would spread out a blanket and sit there and watch the kids playing soccer until it was time to go home. This particular day was windy as hell. Really windy. And I was sitting over by some power lines, right? Some Or telephone poles that had, like, wires stretched between them and there were birds up on these wires. And the wind, like I said, is blowing really hard, and it's blowing down the field. And at the end of the field is a stand of trees. And these birds, I don't know what kind of birds they were, they're just like common birds that you see everywhere. I am no ornithologist. They were (laughs) flying off the wire towards the woods with the wind at their back, and so they were flying like a shot, like they were being shot out of a cannon downfield. A minute later, I would see them beating their way laboriously into the teeth of the wind to get back to the wire. And they would get back to the wire, and then then they would go again. And it just totally reminded me of me, as a kid, trudging up the snow hill with my toboggan, getting to the top, and then, like, racing down to the bottom. There's an example of Ilink's play, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's
1: an obvious and banal thing to notice, but at that time having been fully habituated to the sort of thoroughgoingly naturalist and materialist worldview that obtains not only in the sciences, but also throughout the humanities, particularly in those parts of the humanities influenced by Marxism, which is most of them, there's a strong degree of like a materialist bias. And I had that bias. And so like watching this was enough To crack that a little bit or to make me start realizing like, oh, this doesn't fit well in that worldview because these animals are engaging in gratuitous behavior. Like it's surely not helping them find food or build nests or whatever functional things we've decided are their purpose to do functional things to perpetuate their existence. This is gratuitous. In fact, doesn't make any sense because they're like wasting a lot of energy to constantly like beat back into the wind in order to go again. And the thing is that the moment you say that's play, you're positing an inside for that animal, right? A psychic dimension. So like to get back to what you were saying, the example of the little boy imitating his dad with tools. And you're saying like, we can look at that in a functional and deterministic and sort of neo-Darwinian way, or we can understand it. Behaviorist. Yeah, in a behaviorist way. And we can understand that that is very different from how the child is experiencing that moment. In which respect, it's very much like, say, a child's first communion. You know, this is an example that an old teacher of mine, Jim Hapikoski, once gave me. The child has a special experience. Like, you know, first communion is a big deal in Catholic families. And... The family has a certain kind of feeling about this, like, you know, the child reaching a certain age of reason or being brought within the church and full membership of the community or it has all kinds of significances, right? And for the child herself might have this really powerful and impossible to put into words, religious experience, an ecstatic experience, right? That's on the inside. On the outside, you could have a sociologist looking at this and being like, well, this is how, you know, a patriarchal family structure will perpetuate itself. This is how, uh, you know, yeah. you come up with any number of different...
0: Tribal identity yeah. and in-group and out-group right. stuff. Right, you've yeah. any
1: number of functionalistic explanations. But as we've said before in this show, this shows us like an absolute... Disparity between inside and outside. The interpretation available from the outside does not even touch the experience had on the inside. And what Hausinger wants us to do is to say, like, look, you can't simply take the outside to reduce the inside or assimilate the inside to the outside. The inside has claims of its own, an autonomous claim. And to get back to my birds, what really kind of cracked me open was realizing they are having an experience. I may never have the slightest idea what that really is because I'm not a bird. My point is, though, that like, if we want to grant human beings the dignity of having an experience that's not reducible to the outside perspective, I kind of feel like when you see animals engaging in the same kinds of behavior, playful behavior, or behavior that creates an inside of experience, a, a charmed mm-hmm. circle, I feel that it is, if nothing else, good manners to extend the same privilege to those non-human animals that we do to human animals, to understand that there is an inside there. And if you are willing to go just that far, which really isn't that far, then we are on the first step towards understanding an ensouled nature. Because, okay, so, all right, so non-human animals can have play experiences too. Well, what about the sunrise, right? You were saying before that you were thinking about like what we think of as inanimate things or things that don't have mind. But if you start understanding the world in the kind of cybernetic, like emergent intelligence way that, you know, for instance, actor network theory or cybernetics or whatever have shown us like it is possible to understand complex systems as being possessed of mind. And if we've determined that minds can play, you see where I'm going with this. Like we have play seems so trivial and unimportant to historians of culture, at least many historians of culture. And yet all of a sudden you look at play and you realize, is this the principle by which reality itself becomes conscious, becomes
0: sentient, becomes alive? Well, that's Heraclitus, you know, in a nutshell. Time is a child playing at drafts. The key word there is playing, right? The play function observed in animals is, for us who are open to the possibility, a kind of sign pointing us to the interiority of that which cannot express its interiority with language. Viveiros de Castro's book, Cannibal Metaphysics, he's an anthropologist, and he observes in that book that indigenous cultures of the Amazon, they tend to see all animals as manifestations of the human. They think that all animals were once human, or deep down are human. And the way that Viveiros de Castro interprets that, he's saying that what we call human is actually a property of reality itself, a property of all life. Ah, We want to keep for ourselves something that's just out there. And so to recognize the non-human is also, strangely, to find the human in the non-human, to humanize the non-human in a way, to grant the non-human the same interiority we sense in ourselves and we begrudgingly accept in one another because of the existence of culture. Mm. (laughs) Right? Mm -hmm. But all this has to do with, you were just saying it there, this duality of the inside and the outside, the psychic and the physical, right? So, the mechanistic, secularist, behaviorist way of looking at all this is to bracket out or ignore the psychic. Just look at what the organism is doing, and you'll find out why it's doing it by looking at the results, right? Mm -hmm. But – an honest, more phenomenological way of approaching reality in the way that even B.F. Skinner, when it came to like raising his own child, oh, no, actually, that's not true. Didn't he raise his child in a tank or I something? I once
1: in college as an undergraduate took a course in behaviorist psychology from somebody who emphasized that uh, he really didn't put his child in the box very much. So
0: right. I, have, <laughs> I
1: have a feeling that behaviorists so, are always having to explain that one away. So maybe it's even an urban legend. I don't know.
0: Most of the time, Skinner approached he hardly his ever children. put his
1: child in a behavior <laughs> modification box.
0: <laughs> exactly, just one, just once or twice. Most of the time, he treated his child as though his child was a person. Yeah, an irreducible singular being with an interior experience that cannot be explained away. Right, mm-hmm. I'm assuming. The world, as Spinoza said, can be described as what, you know, Spinoza termed it Deus Sive Natura, which means God or nature. You can look at the world as a, an external thing that works perfectly in a rational way, like a machine, or you can look at it from the inside and then it's just a pure consciousness, a pure intelligence, a kind of a, a beautiful aesthetic creation. That's not how Spinoza would term it, but that's, you could do that. And in modern philosophy, including in Spinoza these two ways of seeing have been not polarized, they've been opposed to one another. So in Descartes, you have mind and matter. They're totally separate. My theory of games is that games are activities where the axis of mind and matter, the axis of the physical and the psychic, the axis of the actual and the virtual becomes acknowledged as an axis as opposed to a barrier between two, disparate things in other words a game is an activity where the psychoid nature of reality the way that nature is not organized dualistically but on a kind of spectrum at one end of which you have the psychic and at the other end you have the physical is affirmed you can see this in the simplest game okay i could think of step on a crack break your mother's back Mm. remember that so there you have the two components of the game you have The physical component, which is you must not step on a crack between the sidewalk tiles. And then the other component is this imaginal component, this imaginal event, which is what happens if you do step on a crack. And I think you always have that in a game. You always have an element of role play in a game. For instance, in chess, you have the actual physical game, which is we're moving pieces on a board in accordance with a specific set of essentially arbitrary rules. And then you have the imaginal aspect of the game, which is there are kings and queens and bishops here battling it out, right? And I think every game falls somewhere on the spectrum between the pole of materiality and the pole of of the imaginal. And so the closer a game is to the material pole, the more likely it is to be called a sport. The closer it is to the imaginative pole, it gets closer to things like role-playing games and pretend the least possible number of rules and the most, the biggest role accorded to the imaginal, to the imaginary or psychic dimension of the event. There are exceptions though, like biathlon is a sport with a strong imaginal component because it makes no sense until you imagine that these are like mountain warriors fighting some kind of enemy with their guns because the two activities involved are so incongruous. There's a weird kind of role-playing aspect to it that I think is important and makes biathlon such a strange sport. Or if you look at a professional wrestling, where you have a strong physical element, but also a strong affirmation of the imaginal element. Yeah, absolutely. Um, In chess, you're not going to be a very good chess player if you keep insisting that your king's an actual king and the queen's a queen. And, you know, you have to forget that. That's why chess is called a sport. But... To a child learning chess, it's very important. This is the king. This is the queen. The goal is to capture the king. The imaginal event is really important for getting started at chess, but then you have to forget about it. Oh, that's interesting. Another one is Monopoly, which I think is perfectly in the middle of the spectrum. Monopoly is a game where physically you're rolling dice, moving around around a board, but the dice are standing in for all the vicissitudes of life. When you pay your income tax, when you become chairman of the board and the, the various things that happen to your character. The imaginal aspect is the wheeling and dealing of real estate barons. And it really is almost a kind of role-playing game where you're really playing this capitalist and you're treating the other players as other capitalists with whom you are engaged in a kind of Aegon or Clue. You can't play Clue without pretending you're a detective. It makes no sense if you just look at it as a chess game where you're just moving things across a board. You're making an accusation. There's a procedural element to it. There's a role-playing element to it. And I think games are just things we do in life where the boundary between the imaginal and the physical is eliminated such that the imaginal and the material appear as poles of a strange psychoid axis, which is why games are so innately magical, aesthetic, you could look at the activity at one extreme of the, we're not in games anymore, because if you go to one extreme, let's say the imaginal extreme, you're daydreaming. That would be the ultimate imaginal event, imaginal activity. If you go to the other end, the absolute extreme at the other end of the spectrum, you're basically involved in work mm-hmm. and useless work. Like the work that the Auschwitz guards would make the prisoners do, which was to carry Rocks back and forth across a yard with no purpose Mm -hmm. just to wear them out between these purely physical events and purely imaginal events you have this spectrum which becomes obvious i think in activities such as gaming art or magic
1: You know, recently in a class that I did, we were looking at the largely philosophical literature and largely analytical philosophy dedicated to the question of whether games can be art. For instance, right. whether a big, beautiful, lovingly crafted world such as the world of Hyrule and Zelda Breath of the Wild, whether that constitutes some kind of art form is a huge question. I don't know if we really want to go there. Maybe we do. I don't know.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I think that games, in a sense, are more fundamental than art. So I would say that not all games are art. I don't think we can conflate the two categories, but I think that all art is a game, if that makes any sense. That there's a game to art that is fundamental to the artistic process, but that does not mean that all games are art. Like, art is one particular type of game. You could put it that way. That's simplistic. It's not exactly what I mean, but I I tend to see them as incommensurable categories. That's my instinct because it's the same thing going on. Like if you're writing a novel, you have the physical aspect of the novel, which are the words on the page, the words you're putting down and the order of the words. And then you have the imaginal aspect, which is what the words mean, the world you're creating with these words. And the artistic process hinges on the play between these two dimensions of the artwork, the marble and the figure that you're trying to sculpt. There's a, um, an exploratory transactional process going on between the artist and the material and the artist and the idea that results in a work of art. And I think that the experience of that creative process is an experience of play mm. at its, you know, mm. at least ideally, that's what you want it to be. And so there's a kind of game like rhyming in poetry. When you throw yourself that gambit, I will write a rhyming poem. You have seriously limited the possibilities of your expression. You have to rhyme. So you're, you're, you have a very limited number of words, but you're wagering that you can still create a poem that is not only as meaningful as a freeform poem, but maybe even more meaningful than you could have managed without that yeah. rule. You're giving yourself an arbitrary rule. In Suits' definition, you're giving yourself an unnecessary rule that results in something meaningful. That's right. It's a
1: voluntary attempt to overcome unnecessary obstacles. Yeah. The the choice of a rhyme scheme in a meter is an unnecessary obstacle. You could just say it in prose, but
0: instead you choose these limitations. And something aesthetic emerges from that encounter. Exactly. And the way that we experience the aesthetic is always, this is often said when people read a a great poem, it's like, it looks effortless. You read Shakespeare and it looks like these words just float out of his pen. There's a, there's a performative aspect, even to the non-performing arts like literature. There's a performative aspect where the artist is showing you this play and everything's falling into place magically, like in a magic trick. And it's not that far off from watching an athlete pull off an amazing move or watching an amazing chess strategy play out, there's a kind of beautiful instantiation of the trustworthiness of the world, where if you're equipped with the right skills and the right mindset and the right approach and the right idea, you can make the world produce beauty or produce something meaningful. And I think that that's, that's something whose essence we find in games, and it manifests in art. So I would say that games are somehow more fundamental and it makes sense in light of what we were saying earlier that the play function is so fundamental in nature that art emerges out of that universe that is inherently playful. That's the aesthetic take. the aesthetic has to do with play before it has to do with art. So maybe. now might be an opportunity to circle back
1: to where we started. We were talking about how your daughter doesn't find dragons or generally fantasy motifs to be all that interesting except when she's playing like a role-playing game where, you know, she's being attacked by a dragon, then the dragon takes on a kind of reality and meaningfulness that it doesn't otherwise have. And we were talking about how gameplay manages to transmute even the corniest cliche into what Jack Smith would call the flaming image.
0: Yeah. I love that phrase.
1: I know me too. And what I left open is a question like, so how does that happen? Like, what is it about gameplay, about play, that allows ordinary things to become so extraordinary?
0: This might be an opportunity to bring up my (laughs) foreword to uh, the book (laughs) of antitheses, Because in there, I'm not going to read from it, but the basic- Oh, I will.
1: I'll do the reading from this, but I'm going to do it in a funny voice.
0: Oh, Because it's you. (laughs) <laughs> I'm
1: J.F. Martel.
0: <laughs> so the idea is not that play turns the imaginary into reality, but that play reminds us or affirms for us the fact that the imaginary is also real. You understand what I'm saying? It's that what we consider to be imaginary is a distraction in the world of work, mm-hmm. right? I can't be imagining my meal too much- while I'm laying brick, because I need to focus on the work, right? I, I can't be fantasizing about my date on Friday night, while I'm engaged in some kind of precarious work involving knives, right? There's a certain <laughs> amount of focus on the physicality, the immediacy of an activity in the work mode. So that, I think, encourages human beings to relegate the imaginal to the imaginary to pretend that the imaginary is not part of reality but no human has ever experienced a world that is not at the same time as Spinoza says physical and psychic the imagination is part of reality and games especially role-playing games are an activity that enable us to recognize the part of reality that goes to the imaginal even though I know that I'd never fought a dragon in that role-playing session 10 years ago, that is the memory I have of that day. Mm-hmm. That is the event which in my memory is more real than the physical event of my sitting at a table with a bunch of dudes eating Cheetos and playing a game. Right. What I remember of that night and what my friends and I talk about when we talk about that night is the dragon. The dragon is, as far as our synapses and our memory centers are concerned, the dragon was the event of that night. It is as real in our memory as the fact of our sitting around a table, in fact, infinitely more significant. And so someone who plays these role-playing games has a store of memory that includes fantastical things. and. When you're lying on your deathbed and you look back, those memories of all the lives you lived in these role playing experiences will be as real to you as your wedding day. They might not be as important to you, but they will be as real. And so games are a way to access the imaginal yep. and to access the imaginal as a region of reality. Yeah. That's what I was trying to say, I think, in that forward. You know,
1: yeah. Well, one of my favorite parts of this forward is where you come up with a definition of reality as. What matters? But I'm going to read from your foreword. So you've been talking about Henri Corbin, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and Carl Jung, united, as you write, by conviction that at least some of the images we see in visions, dreams, and fabulations are things in the horror genre sense of the term, like the thing. That is, they are beings in a world of beings. Our world is not limited to matter as commonly understood. If we assume they are right, they being... Corbin and Jung and Coleridge, we must ask ourselves what is happening in a game session which unfolds in a cosmos that is equal parts matter and dream stuff. The simple answer is that the imaginal content of the game is no less real than the physical event of the session itself. Um, And you go on to say what you just said, that what's real about a RPG session, a successful one, is what happened in the game, not you sitting there with your Cheeto-stained fingers. and you continue the fiction, the fantasy is what my mind stores away as worthy of preservation. That's not to say that I don't value the time I spend with my group. On the contrary, it means that what gives the time we spend together value, what matters in that time, is the thing that we are co-creating at the table. This thing is another reality which in the annals of my memory takes precedence over the mundane events of the day on which it was created. What matters is as good a definition of reality as any others, perhaps a much better one. I agree. Certainly, it is more in keeping with our lived experience than the materialist alternative. It may be easy to dismiss your neighbor's thoughts and feelings as unreal. It is decidedly more difficult to do the same with your own thoughts, since few things in life have a more significant effect on you than the ideations of your mind. One of the benefits of an imaginal outlook is that it allows you to fuse two questions that have preoccupied philosophers for thousands of years, namely the questions, What is and What do I do? If reality is what matters, then the question of ontology, the inquiry into being, is intimately tied to the question of how one ought to live, otherwise known as ethics. That's an interesting thought, it's, right? Yeah. It, reality as what matters. Number one, Man, that's an elegant formulation because we say, what is real, right? Uh, Matter, material stuff is always going to be the first answer that occurs to almost anybody living in our society. But then you start realizing that there are some things like money that have a material component, but also an immaterial, ideal component, right? The idea that this piece of paper means something such that I can get a pack of smokes. Right. Like when we're trying to figure out, okay, so ideas can have real effects. In fact, always do in our lives. Then you say, so what's real is what makes a difference. It's a pragmatic statement. Right. What makes a difference to our behavior.
0: Right. What moves the world. then that
1: introduces this element of like, you know, what matters to me, what matters to individual people, or, you know, what matters to societies that gets us into the realm of desire. What I want to happen. Right. And
0: as you say, into the realm of ethics, what should happen? What should matter? Right. So, like, you just can't make sense of things without including that ideal dimension. You can't even make sense of the process of denying the existence of consciousness in some hyper-materialist way without giving that assertion, that materialist assertion, some kind of psychic value. Like, there's a purpose to being a materialist. It's important that we're right about this. It's important that we say that consciousness is purely an emergent property of physical interactions. You can never take out the psychic side of life. It's just, it's irreducible. It precedes all science. It precedes all theories about matter and psyche.
1: Okay, so I'm going to pivot here and say that one danger of the way that we've been developing the idea of play and games, in this kind of cosmic way, typical of us, where I always feel like we're groping for the infinite. And there's always a danger that you're going to take a principle, a very profound principle, but nevertheless, one principle among many and universalizing it and saying, basically all is play that we we're never not playing or, or, or that play is the radical substance that underlies human activity. Then it seems to me that the sense of boundedness And ephemerality is also really important to play because I'll tell you something that I find ghastly, which is the idea of gamification, Mm. which is one of the signal moves of the neoliberal order, right? Right. I mean, manifested in shit like the Nerf basketball hoop in the break room. Hey, you know, don't think of this as a job. Think of it as fun. We, right, we like to right. have fun here. There's something ghastly about that. One of the point that Housinger makes is that for play to be play, it has to be voluntary, and this is something that people seem generally to agree with him on. Kai, Kai West says the same thing. And yeah. indeed, it got me thinking about how there's actually a durable trope in horror fiction of the game that you are forced to play. The most dangerous game, Saw. So there's so true. many examples or like um, Squid Game where the horror comes in the fact that we're doing something that's game-like, but it's compelled. And it's not even that it has a deadly outcome. Because there are games that humans play that have deadly outcome and we accept that. Luge, for example, is really fucking dangerous. But yeah. the idea that you would be forced to play a dangerous game, there's a horror to that, that you can mine. And people have mine for many, many movies. There's something awful about this idea of gamifying. I haven't thought it through except to say that there's something that happens in games where you let X equal Y. You allow things to gain values as tokens. They become the voluntarily accepted but unnecessary obstacles that, you know, that's the salt that seasons the dish. That's what makes a game a game, right? But when you're turning human beings into this and human relationships into these things, when you are instrumentalizing people in this way, it becomes a little bit of a horror show. It it violates something basic to play in the same way as those fictions about forced play. There's something awful, ghastly about it. So keep in mind, the magic circle is also a protective circle. If the game were to escape the circle, we would end up in the fucking neoliberal hellscape that we exist in now.
0: Yeah, or we would end up like those kids in the 80s who the kid who died in the sewers there because he thought he was his character oh, yeah. from the Dungeons and Dragons game. I don't remember the details of that. But banishing again. Games need to be contained. Look at that kind of gamification culture in the financial world and the in the business world. You can see it on Wall Street, but they're not, it's not just the Nerf basketball hoop in the rec room at the office. It's playing games with food markets, playing speculative right. games, treating, you know, the housing market as a kind of game and letting millions of people pay the price of your fun. You or know? Games, in, uh, games
1: in relationships, like people who play games in a dating yeah. situation.
0: Well, playing mind games, you know, jealousy games. You're creating a magic circle known only to you in which the normal rules of behavior don't apply because you're experimenting with the person. There's like something, yeah, manipulative about it, something, it forgets the ethical side of the question. Like Heraclitus's line, you know, time is a child at play or time is a child playing at drafts. You can frame that as a kind of beautiful aesthetic Affirmation of the playfulness of the universe, as we did earlier, or you it could, could be frame it horror. as a total horror show. Yeah. yeah, imagine putting a four-year-old in charge of the universe. You know, sometimes kind smashing of, planets some, together. Sometimes kind of feels like that's what happened. Exactly. Exactly. So everything's got two sides, right? So, like, I think that this is essential, and that the spirit of work. Is, if nothing else, if we want to go back to the story of the grasshopper and the ant there, um, I don't know how it's called in English. Yeah, story of the grasshopper and the ant. Yeah. Is it a grasshopper? Because it's a cicada in French, so I'm not sure. So the grasshopper, she wiles away her time or he spends her time relaxing and stuff. And when the winter comes, the grasshopper freezes to death. The grasshopper, if I understood suits correctly, is assuming a utopia that does not actually obtain. <laughs> yeah, uh, assuming uh, a luxury that is not actually affordable under the present conditions. Whereas the ant is thinking ahead to the winter. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, human culture has the dimension of play, and animal culture is the same. It has that component, but also has another component, which is thinking ahead, thinking in terms of of ethics, of the should.
1: Yeah. One last thing. Very important question. If you and I were D&D characters, what like D&D types or like races or classes would we be? Because I was talking about this with Helen and I said that I thought that you would be a wood elf and I would be an orc. And she said, no, you wouldn't be an orc. You would be a dwarf. And I felt rather disappointed by that. But I had to acknowledge the justice of her remark. (laughs)
0: <laughs> um it's funny because I, I had a friend once who was casting everyone as D characters and he he said that i would be a dwarf he actually his specifically he said if i were uh he asked me if you were a lord of the rings character which one would you be and of course i said aragorn <laughs> and he's like no you'd be gimli the dwarf <laughs> um so i was gonna say a dwarf just because that that's what i was told but Honestly, um, well, now we're talking races. In old d and the type I'm playing these days, race and class are bundled together in the concept of class. So you don't play like an elven wizard. You play an elf or a dwarf or a fighter or a thief. I oh, would okay. choose for myself. Yeah, I would choose a magic user, as it's called in the game, a wizard. But, you know, there's wish fulfillment involved as well. Of course. I think I actually would be just probably uh, a first level thief with really bad pickpocketing skills. (laughs) A one-handed thief. They already caught you once. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) They only caught you once.
1: But as a result, you're really not that good because you only have one hand.
0: But I would concur with Helen that you'd be a dwarf and that's not, I think that's a great class to be because the dwarves are solid, confident, rooted in the earth. They love shiny things. Oh, that's that's me. I do like shiny things. They love And they love to fight. Yeah, no, it's true. So I think a wood elf is probably a fair, I think probably fair for me too, though, to be honest, for other reasons. Well, the
1: reason that I would like to be an orc is the same reason that all of my RPG characters are brutal, violent men of few words. But I have to acknowledge that that's a very small part of my actual personality.
0: Yeah. That brings us back full circle, full circle to where we were like five minutes ago, which is that games are the place to become other you know I I love Monopoly I love Monopoly I I know that game designers have all kinds of problems with Monopoly because of its inelegance and all kinds of things I think it's a wonderfully designed game that allows me to be for a short time with my daughters a total asshole and it's all in good fun I usually lose which is so it's easy for me to like Monopoly because there's nothing worse than winning at Monopoly it's the most awful feeling but I enjoy the suspension of ethics in the name of ethics that only games give us. You know, you're suspending the moral in the name of the moral, in the name of the good. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the weird studies subreddit and of course support us on patreon music for the podcast is composed and performed by pierre yves martel and the show is made with the assistance of meredith michael thank you for listening